Father, we pray as we learn these things that they would overlap into the application of it in our lives, that you are a God who rules over all things, that you are a God who is sovereign. God, we are a people who are quick to fear and to worry and to be concerned, and yet to know that you are a God that sees all, knows all, and is in control of all, brings comfort to us. We praise you for that, in Jesus' name, amen. But I loved sin and was unwilling to forsake it. Newton confessed that his religion tended to make him gloomy, unsociable, and useless. The number of times John Newton's life was spared is remarkable. The most memorable occurred when he was working for a slave trader in Africa. Newton was dangerously ill. He was left in the care of the slave trader's African wife who hated him. She put him in chains and nearly starved him. She occasionally had him brought before her and her friends where she would offer him the leftovers on her plate. On one occasion, he dropped the plate and was unable to reach the food. She mocked him as he cried. When not in her presence, the slaves pitied John and some of them shared their meager rations with him. Eventually, the slave owner returned home. He refused to believe Newton's account of the way he had been treated, but he took John with him on his next excursion into Africa. However, due to a false accusation against Newton, his employer had him chained to the deck of the ship as it was anchored off the African coast. Newton would have starved to death had he not been able to get some string and a hook and to fish for his food. Eventually he was freed and he accepted a position with a new employer who treated him fairly. Having ignored his conscience so frequently, John Newton was able to silence it for years. Worse still, he mocked the cross and all things sacred. He spread his disdain for God everywhere he went. But by the grace of God, John Newton was not left in this hardened state. While a prisoner, he attempted to smuggle a letter back to his father in England. Unknown to him, his father received the letter and asked a friend whose ship was trading off the coast of Africa to find and bring home his son. It seemed a long shot. But through the extraordinary mercy of God, that captain found John Newton. However, in his new employment, Newton lived without any restrictions and plenty of money to do as he wished. He had little desire to return to England. However, the captain of the ship convinced him to come home by telling him that he was the heir of a large inheritance. It was a lie, but it worked. However, the captain soon regretted bringing John on board. Though he was a rough character himself, he scolded Newton for his shocking blasphemies. A brutal storm struck the vessel, and the captain blamed Newton, calling him a Jonah. The storm-battered ship was sinking. The men worked frantically, the freed a ship of water. As John Newton labored at the pumps, the waves crashed over his head. Each time the ship plunged down into the sea, he feared it was the end. The storm lasted for days. At one point, Newton said, almost without thinking, the Lord have mercy on us. This, said Newton, was the first time he had asked for God's mercy for the space of many years. As an experienced seaman, Newton was sent to the helm to steer the ship. Standing at the helm for days gave him time to think. Passages his mother taught him to memorize as a child began to flood his mind. But Newton decided that if the Christian religion were true, he was beyond hope, having so often mocked Christ's claims. He despaired. 
He was well aware that God was a God who hated sin and poured out his just wrath on sinners. But he wondered, how could he find mercy? When he heard that the ship was out of danger, Newton began to hope. He found a New Testament and read it, along with a sermon entitled, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He embraced the doctrine of God manifest in the flesh, reconciling the world to himself. He said, I stood in need of an almighty Savior, and such a one I found, described in the New Testament. God had finally brought John to himself through his son. Years later, he wrote, If any pretend to know God and to have communion with him otherwise than by the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent, and by faith in his name, it is a proof that they neither know God nor themselves. God, apart from the revelation of himself in the person of Jesus, is a consuming fire. And if he should look upon us without a mediator, we could expect nothing from him but indignation and wrath. Newton never forgot these experiences. And in future years, when he was a minister living in the old vicarage behind me, he had a small study in which he would prepare his sermons. John Newton hired a man to paint two verses and framed them in that study. The first says, Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. And he joined that verse with another. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. This redeeming God who rescued even John Newton is the God that you will be studying this week. In the first chapter of Malachi, we read these words. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The theme you've been studying this week is the rule of God or the sovereignty of God. The fact that God has power, the ability to do all his pleasure, but also that he has sovereignty or the right to do all his pleasure. God is essentially sovereign. That is, it's part of who he is. He, he doesn't have to make an effort to be a ruler. And he is eternally sovereign. He has always been sovereign, is sovereign at this present moment, and will always be sovereign. He was sovereign even before he created anyone to rule. Our working definition for sovereignty this week has been that God possesses and continually exercises the sole right to do all his pleasure with all his creation, without any external interference. Now, those are fine words, and it's easy to say that in a Bible study setting, but really, if we're honest and we look around, we have to ask ourselves, does it, does it appear to you that a righteous king is ruling our world? Doesn't it look to you more like the days of the judges in which the Bible says, every man did what was right in his own eyes, for there was no king in the land? If we're honest, I think even a Christian feels tempted to ask the Lord Jesus Christ the same question that Pilate asked him. Are you really the king? Remember the scene which John witnessed in Revelation chapter 5. God the Father is on the throne. In his hand is a scroll. And the scroll represents all that the Father yet desires to see accomplished. A strong angel is sent to cry out to all creation and to ask who is worthy to take the scroll and to open it. It's not who is strong enough. Who is worthy? That is, 
Who has the authority to rule heaven and earth? And there's a long pause. No one is found. John begins to weep, but suddenly he's told to stop. Someone has come forward. He looks. There's one like a lion, a royal one from the family of David. He has overcome and earned the right. John turns. He sees the strange sight. It's a man who was slaughtered like a lamb. Here's a mystery that we often overlook as Christians, and I want us to feel the shock of it. On the throne of heaven, a human is now seated. Truly God, yes, but truly human. And never before has anything like this happened. One theologian describes it this way. A man sits on the mediatorial throne of the universe. So any study we make of the sovereignty of God, if we don't bring it to bear on the God-man then we would be sadly incomplete in our labors. It's very important, this doctrine, and we want to put our thinking caps on and to do some hard work for a few moments as we consider it. We do have help from the Old Testament. Through the prophets, God has prepared us for this shocking sight. Do you remember Isaiah 9 and verse 6, a Christmas passage, but one that really has more to do with a throne than a manger? We read this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Psalm 110 The father says something to the son. As the son returns from his labors, he's seated at the father's right hand. And here's the only place that we have recorded what the father says. The Lord said to my Lord, the father said to the son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In Daniel chapter 7, long before John's vision on the Isle of Patmos, Daniel writes this. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which will never be destroyed." Psalm 2 prepares us for this sight, but it also gives us a warning that the appointment of the Messiah to be the ruler of heaven and earth is not an appointment that's without resistance, but all opposition is futile. In Psalm 2 we read, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, the king, saying this, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. So the the universal rebellion of humanity. And then what follows in the psalm is the response of the Father from heaven and also the response of the Messiah. This is what the Father says in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Then the Messiah speaks, verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. 
He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. All of these preparing us for the sight that John records in Revelation 5, coming to the throne of the unapproachable, infinite God is a man worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the Father, to be seated at his right hand, to break the seals, and to begin to accomplish all the Father's good pleasure. That's a wonderful picture, but there's more to it, and it's wonderful. Why has Christ been given the throne? Well, the New Testament explains that for us very clearly. But before we talk about that, let's consider this throne. This is a different matter, this sovereignty, than what we've been talking about this week about the essential sovereignty of God. As the eternal Son of God, He has always possessed, as co-equal with Father and Spirit, He has always possessed all authority. But for the purpose of our rescue, He has laid aside His glory. He has emptied himself of that glory by adding our humanity to his deity, to his godness. Fully God, but now he has added humanity. And becoming a man, he suffers even death on the cross. When he returns to heaven from his earthly labors, he will remain forever God and man. And yet, he's on the throne. So this is a sovereignty that's true, but it is different from what we've been describing earlier this week. It's different than the sovereignty that he possesses as son of God. As God, he is essentially sovereign, and no one can give him sovereignty. But as a man, as Jesus of Nazareth, he has been given this authority by God the Father. Theologians describe it this way. The God-man is constituted or established as the king of all by God, as represented in the Father. Again, another theologian writes, the attributes of humanity and deity are both being exercised in perfect harmony as Jesus Christ rules over all, administering the will of his Father. So that's the kind of rule we're talking about, a gift to the mediator for his church. Now, why? Listen to these passages and see if you can spot why Christ was given this authority. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's Pentecost sermon contains these words. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Then he goes on to say this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So here's the Messiah. He's been crucified. And the Father, in response to the crucifixion, exalts him to the position of Lord or Master. In Philippians 2, Paul explains it for us there. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Hebrews chapter 1 speaks of the connection. 
Verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews is describing the ongoing work of a normal earthly priest. Daily, always having to repeat the sacrifices because the sacrifice never really removed the guilt of sin. But then he comes to the description of the priest, Christ, and he says, This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Now, in each of the passages I've just read, it is the work of the cross that is forever connected with the honor of the crown. The throne of heaven and earth is given to the Lord Jesus Christ as a reward for his suffering. Now, that's the why. But there are certain implications that really affect the Christian. Think about it, Christian. Your kinsman or your elder brother, one of us, has been placed at the right hand of the Father and given the rule over all creation for the good of his church, Paul says in Ephesians, and for his Father's glory. So you can take everything you've been studying this week about the sovereignty of God and legitimately you can say this to be true of Jesus of Nazareth right now. Jesus of Nazareth possesses and continually exercises the sole right to do all his pleasure with all his creation without any explanation or any external interference. Christ is free. He is sovereign. He owes no one anything. No one can manipulate him or control him. He is only obligated to do what he desires to do, and that is to do all his Father's will. If we reread some of the verses that you studied this week and we placed Jesus of Nazareth into the passage, it would be true. Think of it. As God is free to do all his pleasure without interference, so Jesus now is free to do all his pleasure without interference. Job 42. I know that you, Jesus, can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Or Psalm 135, verse 6, For I know that Jesus is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever Christ pleases, He does, in heaven and in the earth, in the seas and in all deep places. Or Job 9, As God is free to give or to take as He sees fit, so is Christ. We could say it this way, If Jesus takes away who can hinder him? Who can say to Christ, what are you doing? Or again, as God is free to choose if and when to rescue people, so Christ is free. In Isaiah 45, we read about the Father. We could also say this to be true of the Son. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace, and I create calamity. I, Jesus, do all these things. A.W. Pink's description of God's sovereignty. It's a wonderful description that you studied this week. It can now be applied clearly to the God-man. Being infinitely elevated, Pink says, above the highest creature, he is the most high Lord of heaven and earth. 
Christ is subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. Jesus does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and always as he pleases. None can thwart him. None can hinder him. He is unrivaled in majesty, unlimited in power, and unaffected by anything outside of himself. Well, that description of God fits Christ perfectly. I wonder, have you ever considered the wonder and the beauty of your kinsman on the throne of heaven? Now, what response will we make? As a king, the Lord Jesus Christ has been entrusted not merely with ruling, but also with judging all. In John chapter 5, we read this. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. What a wonderful passage. Christ the King is also Christ the Judge. And the purpose of that is that the Father will see to it that by being judged, everyone will see the worth of the Son, just as they see the Father's worth. In Revelation 20, there's that terrible scene, the great white throne, the judgment. Christ is on the throne, all creation fleeing His face in His wrath, but all angels and humanity called before Him with authority. There they come to be judged. Judgment the special privilege of the mediator. Everyone will honor Christ as they will honor his Father today or at the judgment. What about a king that can pardon? If he can judge, he can also pardon. Even in the United States, our president has a right to pardon. He can look at a person who is legitimately found guilty and he's been in prison and just because he has the authority of a president, he can declare that person pardoned, free. Think of it. We have disregarded the laws of Jesus Christ. We have refused the claims of Jesus Christ. We have denied the rights of Christ. We have labored to struggle against the throne of Jesus Christ. But there is still time. Because the one that we fought against is the one that the Father has appointed to pardon criminals like us. Think again of Psalm 2. All the earth is gathered together with the false hope that there's safety in numbers. If all the judges and the kings, the politicians and the common people, the businessmen, the rich, the poor, the intellectual, if we all gather together and we say together, we're tired of being ruled by Jesus of Nazareth. What good would it do? Heaven mocks our, our hope. Our war is a futile thing. And Christ tells us, the Father has already appointed me. But at the end of the psalm, we read this. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment and take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do you see the command? Look by faith at heaven's throne. Do you see the Lord Jesus of Nazareth seated there? Do you see him? Worship him 
and rejoice with trembling. Do homage, which is the old way of saying, pay your respects. Do homage to this king so that he will not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. What a wonderful paradox. The offended king and the criminal. But the criminal has one place of refuge, one place he can hide himself from the wrath of the king, and it's in the king himself. In Psalm 97, the psalm opens with this statement, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. A couple of psalms later, Psalm 99, it opens with this statement, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. The rule of Jesus of Nazareth, it is a thing that will either bring joy or terror to every individual. And it is a joy or terror that will last forever. So which will it be for you? Will you worship the Lord with reverence? Will you lay all your claims down before Him? Will you see His superior worth, His superior righteousness, His superior power, and give up all hope in your own righteousness or any self-help scheme that you're hoping in? Even your religion, you leave it all behind and come before Him with nothing, nothing but the hope of His mercy. The Lord Jesus reigns, let the earth rejoice. The Lord Jesus reigns, let the peoples tremble. But the reign of Christ is a reality that we all have to deal with. Will you join humanity in its futile attempt to cast off the restraints of Jesus of Nazareth? Will you wage a hopeless war against a king you can't even reach? Will you do it until he comes with vengeance? Well, there are many wonderful options other than that. The options of the Christian life. Think of what Paul writes in Romans 14. In Romans, you know, the first 11 chapters, Paul lays out the doctrines of the Christian life. But beginning in chapter 12, he talks about a life that in light of those extraordinary mercies through Christ, this life is now presented as a living sacrifice dedicated to God, just like a sacrifice. And so in chapter 12 and in chapter 13 and in chapter 14, we find Paul laying out a series of commands. This is how you ought to live especially in the church, Jew and Gentile, with all the struggles. In chapter 14, he's giving a number of commands, and he comes to verse 7, and he gives them a reminder of why he can command them. He says this, For not one of us lives for himself. That's a very significant thing. This is the way you ought to live as a Christian. Well, Paul, how can you tell us that? Because you don't live for yourself. In fact, nobody here is to live for himself. And no one dies for himself, Paul says. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Then he explains again. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why did Christ come? Why did he die? Why was he raised? Why is he at the right hand of the Father? That he might be Lord of the dead and of the living. That he might rule over all. One of the simplest expressions of this happy surrender to a king 
is found in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 20. Now, in the original account, it's not a happy event. Let me read the account to you. Now, Benadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army, and there were 32 kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. Then he sent messengers to the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and he said to him, Thus says Benadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your most beautiful wives and your children are also mine. The king of Israel replied, It is according to your word, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Do you understand the scene? Benadad with all the other kings, the 32 kings, they've surrounded the city. It's under siege. There is really no hope for Ahab. His armies cannot match this. And so Benadad sends the messenger. And it's a, it's a token. I'm going to demand everything from your king. And he's going to give me everything I demand. And you will see who rules over you. Now, I won't have to destroy the city. I won't have to kill all of you. But you will bow to me through your king. And so Ahab understands that's the situation. And as a wise ruler, even though he's an ungodly man, he is prudent enough to say, okay, 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 fine. We'll work with this. Everything I have, according to your word, it's all yours. Later, Benadad thinks that this was too easy, you know, that he set the price too low. So he goes back and sends his messenger and says, no, 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 wait, I, I've got, actually, I've got some more I want from you. And he just continues the process of humiliation. And Ahab realizes there will be no way to satisfy Benadad. And so the Lord ultimately has to enter in to rescue them. Now think of this statement. It is according to your word, my Lord, O King, I am yours and all that I have. Ahab was forced by 33 kings and their armies to make this statement to his enemy. My, my silver, my gold, my wives, my children, my family, it's all yours. But Christian, that is not what Christ has come to do. The friend of sinners is on the throne of heaven. And he has chased us out from, from beneath all of our false hopes. And he's brought us to himself and he's granted us repentance. And the kindness of the king has broken our hearts. And now it's not a, a statement that's wrung out of the unwilling conquered, humiliated person. It's, it comes from a heart of gratitude. It is according to your word, Jesus of Nazareth, my Lord, O King, I am yours and all that I have. First me, I, everything about me, my past, my present, my future, my plans, my money, my thoughts, internal, external, private and public, I am yours according to this word. Whatever this book says, whatever the scriptures make demands upon me, God, I embrace them. I am yours and everything that I have. What a privilege for the Christian to wake up every morning and before your feet hit the floor as you get out of bed, to turn your heart to heaven and to see your kinsmen there entrusted with all authority by the Father for your good and for you to happily say to him again, it is according to your word, Jesus, my Lord, O King, I am yours and all that I have. Let's pray. God, you are a king who will be feared or loved.
Father, we thank you that you have come in the person of your son with extraordinary might and with an infinite right to do all your pleasure. But we are shocked that it is your pleasure to rescue and not merely to judge. So we pray that you would give us hearts full of gratitude, that we would see by faith the rule of Jesus of Nazareth. And as we study the scriptures and see the sovereignty that belongs to you, uncreated being, we would understand that that has been entrusted to our Savior. And it would move us. Much more than fear moved Ahab. They would move us to gladly say that it is according to your word, our Lord, O King, we are yours and all that we have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we say that God is sovereign, if I could squeeze it down into the smallest package that I could say accurately, we would be saying that there is a God and you are not him. The God who is does all that he pleases. There's no impediment to the activity of God. If he pleases it, if it pleases him to do it, he does it because he's the king and he has no rival. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. I think the reason why we get sovereignty wrong is because we dissociate it from the other attributes of God, that this sovereign God is the God who's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so his sovereignty is not arbitrary, it's not capricious, that it is the outworking of that pure, perfect, holy, gracious will of the saving God. People say, well, how do you reconcile his sovereignty in salvation with human responsibility? Spurgeon used to say, well, I never reconcile friends. They're, they're just part of the same thing. They're the other sides of the same coin. And this, this concept of the antinomy of two things appearing to be contradictory but not being contradictory, I think, is something that we all have to embrace. So whilst on the one hand we say to people, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, on the other hand we say to them, you are chosen in him from before the foundation of the world, and he gives the faith and repentance, but he does enable us to believe, and we must, and he does enable us to repent, and we must. So there is um, a harmony between those two things. And I think many people fail to grasp that, so they take one side or the other and then don't embrace the whole truth as it's revealed to us. God, in his sovereignty, has not only appointed the ends, but has also appointed the means to those ends. And so in the salvation of sinners, God has appointed Christ as the Saviour. He has sent his messengers into this world to declare life to every creature, calling all to trust in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sins, and has promised that those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus, coming to him as the true Lamb of God, will be saved from their sins. So the sovereignty of God never, never becomes an excuse for us not to proclaim the gospel, and never becomes an excuse to us not to respond to the gospel. In fact, it's the very reason why we should. To the unbeliever, it is a terrifying thing because it means that 
whereas we think we can control things and we are in charge and we can manipulate and maneuver, actually it's God who is in control and in charge and we're going to have to meet him, we're going to have to give an account to him. And he will ask us as to whether we've been like little children, humbly living before him and loving him and serving him and honoring his son and acknowledging him to be God. And if we haven't, then we face the judgment. So it's a terrifying prospect for an unbeliever. Sin is essentially self-deification. I'm sovereign. I will be my own God. You will not reign over me. I will have it my way, and your prerogatives don't matter. It's essentially trying to usurp his throne. It is, as I said, it's, it's a fist in the face of the Almighty. Or worse, a foot in his chest attempting to push him from the throne so that we could sit in his place. And the king will not take that lightly. Sin ultimately is rebellion against the sovereign God, the way in which he controls everything and rules over everything and is in charge of everything, something we as human beings resent deeply. But to become a true Christian, you have to just humble yourself beneath his mighty hand and he will exalt you. So I think that God's sovereignty, even if because of our feebleness and lowness and ignorance, defeats us on some levels. It's also a hiding place because we know that this is the sovereign God and that he is in control of all these things and that even sin, wickedness and Satan himself is made to serve the purposes of his glory and his people's good. So when we think about the sovereignty of God, we're not thinking about one among many. We're thinking of the God who is, and in and of himself, he is the king. So at the final comments, when they had everybody come up, uh, Pastor Jordan, who just finished right there, his first comment was, there is a God and you are not him. I was like, whoo, okay. So when do we think we are God? When do we put ourselves in his place? He went on later and said, when you sin, when you want your way, you usurp his authority. He said it's like putting your foot in his chest and knocking him over so you can take over the throne. How does that sit with you? I mean, we, especially here at Pacific Hope, can speak of the sovereignty of God very well. We can talk about his sovereignty, but what about the application of that in our lives? To know that God is sovereign, his will be done, that we yield to his will, that we desire his will, that we submit to his will. Oh, how we need to pray and ask for help. Let's do that now. Father, what a glorious truth to hear about a sovereign God, one who is in control of all things. And yet what a convicting truth as well. As we will proclaim your sovereignty, we will 
profess that we acknowledge it and know it, and yet we kick against it so often. We act idolatrous and want our own way, our own timing, our own thing. Oh God, we ask for your help. We thank you for giving us your spirit. We thank you for giving us access to your throne of grace that we might come in confidence to receive help in a time of need. God, may it be moment by moment throughout the day that we come to you and ask for help to abide in you, to desire your will to be done, to be comforted that you are God and you know everything that is good. Father, help us to live as those whom you have saved for your glory, that you would receive all the honor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.